Thanks, guys. Tyler, I think you look good, man. Don't let Jake mess with you. He's just jealous. Um, well, if you haven't been here in a while or you're new here, we'd like to welcome you to Creekside Church. If you've ever heard me preach before, it's probably pretty obvious that I like history. Sometimes probably a little too much to some of you for your liking, but um, I like all kinds of history, and I think one of my favorite time periods is the Roman Empire. I don't know if it's probably an actual technical name for that, but just the Roman Empire. Um, I don't know if you'd realize this, but so much of what we do today has been shaped by the Roman Empire, from the way we do government with our Senate to democracy, the way we do our roads and highways to the way we construct our cities. Um, it's, you can literally tie some of those roots back to the Roman Empire. And then even beyond that, if you look at the way Christianity, I mean, the Roman Empire was the, the, the powers that be when Jesus was crucified on the cross. And then in the couple hundred years after the crucifixion, you can watch Christianity grow in first in isolation due to persecution. And then when Constantine became the emperor and converted to Christianity, it was kind of commonplace for there to be Christians in the empire. But Rodney Stark has a book, it's called The Rise of Christianity. And he kind of traces the growth from that 120 in the upper room all the way down through, you know, the growth of Christianity. And it's, he says some of the largest growth in the early centuries can be attributed to the Christian's care for the sick. Um, and it's, this is what he said, I must read you a few paragraphs of the book. He says, in 165 AD, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, an epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. The mortality rate was so high that in many cities, they had to have caravans and carts that would haul away the dead. And all during that 15-year duration of that epidemic, a third of the Roman Empire was gone. And he said almost 100 years later, in 251 AD, a second epidemic struck the Roman world. And at its height, 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. And in other cities like Alexandria, two-thirds of the population was gone. Pagan Rome was completely ill-prepared to help the sick or deal with mass death. And worse yet, the doctors, the pagan priests, and the nobles fled these infected areas in droves. The best of the Greco-Roman scientists knew of no way to treat the epidemics other than to avoid all contact with those who were sick. And this is exactly what they did, often evacuating entire towns. The Christians, however, showed how their faith made life and even sometimes death meaningful. During the plague, when nearly everyone else fled, the early Christians risked their lives for one another by simple deeds of washing the sick, offering water and food, consoling the dying. They supplied food for the poor. In Antioch, the number of poor being fed by the early church at one point reached almost 3,000 people a day. Their care for others was so extensive that the emperor Julian eventually tried to copy the church's welfare system. It failed, however, because for the Christians, it was love, not duty, that motivated them. At the risk of their own lives, they saved immense number of lives. Their elementary nursing methods greatly reduced mortality. Simple provisions of food and water allowed the sick that were temporarily too weak to cope for themselves. It allowed them to recover instead of perishing. Christian survivors of the plague now became immune and were able to pass among the afflicted with seemingly invulnerability. The early Christians became, in the words of one scholar, a whole force of miracle workers to heal the dying. In the midst of intermittent persecution and colossal misunderstanding of their beliefs, and in an era where serving others 
was thought to be demeaning, the followers of the way, instead of fleeing disease and death, went about ministering to the sick and helping the poor, the widowed, the crippled, the blind, the orphan, and the aged. The people of the Roman Empire were forced to admire their works and dedication. Look how they love one another was often heard throughout the streets. He goes on to explain kind of each of the epidemics that happened over the centuries that followed and kind of the role the Christians played in that. It was, I was very, very intrigued, but there was one sentence in there, and literally there was multiple historians that said that you could go into the empire at the time of these epidemics, and you could hear people say, look how they loved one another. And so I put it right there, look how they loved one another. And I want you to think about that phrase. And I want you to think whether Creekside Church, if that could be said of our church. If those words right there could be used to represent Creekside Church. If others who aren't here looked at us and looked at our gatherings and our social gatherings and our church services and the way we cared for each other when they were sick, we helped each other with meals, we fellowshiped together, if those words could be used to describe us, all right? Then think of maybe your marriage or your family or your relationships and just think, could somebody who looked at my marriage or looked at me, looked at my relationships, could they say that about me? Or maybe even just you personally. Forget all those other things, take those other things away and just think about you. Could somebody who looked at you say, man, look how he loves people. Look how she loves people. All right, open your Bibles to John 13. We're going to continue what has turned into, so far, a six-month study through the book of John. We started in March. It's now September. We're in John 13, so we're coming down the home stretch. Then um, we could have taken it quite a bit longer, but we've, you know, we've taken it in chunks. But we're going to pick up a familiar theme in John, in John chapter 13, which is serving and love. That's the theme of this chapter, serving and love. And today, we find ourselves in the middle of Jerusalem in the middle of Passover week, right? This is the week when the Jews celebrated their deliverance from, from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And this particular Passover, in this particular year, it wouldn't be remembered so much for what happened during Passover, but it would be remembered for the fact that Jesus would be nailed to a cross, during this particular week, when the Jews were celebrating the you know, Passover where they had to cut the throat of the lambs and put the blood above the doorpost, like that was what they were celebrating. Jesus, as God's lamb, would have his blood shed and be nailed to a cross to take your sins and my sins on himself. So it's, this is really, you know, he's coming, this is his whole ministry is coming down the home stretch. Okay, he's been, his ministry's coming to an end. It's been a three, probably incredible years for his, him and his disciples. His disciples have seen thousands of miracles over the course of these three years. Probably heard thousands of sermons. And the crazy thing is, in spite of all of that, one of them, Judas, remains unchanged. Unchanged. All right? And it's, if, you, if you think about it, it's really crazy because he's still selfish in spite of everything he's seen. Literally walked with Jesus daily. Judas was one of the twelve. All right, Selfish in spite of all the serving he's seen. Greedy in spite of all the giving that he's witnessed. He's prideful right in the face of humility. 
prideful even to the end when Jesus gets down on his knee and washes the disciples' feet. But not only the disciples' feet, but washes Judas' feet. And Jesus already knew Judas was going to betray him. And he still got down on his knee, grabbed Judas' foot, looked at Judas in the eyes, and washed his feet. That's love. That's humility. But for Judas, it didn't matter. Deep down, his heart was cold. Can you imagine you know, how cold your heart must be to witness what he's witnessed and just go through the motions? I mean, for me, it's hard to understand. Now, it probably made it a little easier that he was the treasurer. He was in control of the money bag. So no doubt, I mean, we don't know this for a fact, but I have no doubt he was slipping money from the money bag, just trying to make himself feel a little better. I'm sure he loved the fame and the recognition that came with being a disciple of Jesus. I mean, it wasn't intended, but it was there. When the thousands followed Jesus, they knew who the 12 were. And I'm sure he liked the fame, the recognition, but at some point he just said, all right, I've had enough. I'm done with it. It's over. All this talk about the kingdom of God. I'm tired of this money being wasted on the poor. I'm tired of tens of thousands of dollars being broken in perfumes and oils and Jesus' feet being washed. We could have done something with that money. Right? This lady comes in and cleans, washes Jesus' feet with her hair, has this perfume, this expensive perfume, and Judas is the one that says that money could have been given to the poor. Obviously, he didn't really want to give the money to the poor. Probably wanted to keep it. But you can tell where his heart was, all right? And the evil inside of him just kind of reached its level. So Matthew 26 says, this is what Judas did. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So as Jesus and his disciples are preparing for this week of Passover and festivities, there's this ulterior motive, this plan that's kind of going on in the background. You don't see much of it in John, but you can read about it in the other Gospels. So Jesus and his disciples, no, Jesus is well aware of it. The other disciples aren't, but there's this plan. Judas is looking, he's scheming for when, when can I help, when can this go down? When can I turn Jesus in? So Jesus comes in on Passover to Passover week on Sunday. People wave the palm branches. We now call it Palm Sunday. It's the week before Easter. So that's when Jesus comes into the city. He's riding on the back of a donkey. Monday, he, Monday, he walks into the temple. If you remember, he pushes over the money changers' tables. People coming into Jerusalem for Passover. If you didn't live in Jerusalem, you would have had Roman coins. But the Romans let the Jews keep their own currency inside Jerusalem. So if you came from afar and came into the city, you'd have to exchange your coins. The Roman coins couldn't be used in the city of Jerusalem, so the money changers were there, but they set up in the temple. And Jesus came in and goes, this is not a place of this. This is not a den for robbers or thieves. My house is a place of prayer. And so if you read in Matthew, he changes over the money changers' tables. Tuesday, a lot more conflict with the religious leaders. They were trying to arrest him, trying to find evidence on him. Wednesday would have been a day of rest, most likely. We don't know what happened on Wednesday, but now it's Thursday. The day when Jesus and his disciples would make their way to the upper room for the annual Passover meal. All right, so all week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, you know, you know, Judas is in the background waiting for his opportunity. So Jesus and his disciples are participating in these festivities. Judas, you know, kind of looking for, because what happened is they wanted the crowds to be small. If the crowd was big, there might be an uprising. So Judas wanted the crowd to be just the right size so when he turned Jesus in, there wouldn't be an uprising. And if there was an uprising, the Romans would come in and squash it. 
and nobody liked to be squashed. So the Jews wanted to keep everything just the way it was. So the Passover meal would have been the perfect opportunity. Probably just the 12 of them, plus Jesus, in a particular place, wherever that was. Now, Judas has no clue where that is. All right, we read in Luke that when Jesus made, because Jesus knows this plan. So when Jesus made preparations for Passover, he didn't tell anybody but Peter and John. He didn't tell Judas where he was going because he wanted this time with his disciples. So Luke 22, you see, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, two disciples, saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will we have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. So Peter and John obviously the ones that prepare this Passover meal. And then on Thursday, Jesus takes all of his disciples to this upper room. As we found out last week, they recline at the table. And as dinner begins, Jesus gives this mind-blowing example of love and humility, takes the role of a servant, and he washes their feet. Okay, and then as we wrapped up last week, Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 15 and says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I love that last verse. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Two very important components of our walk with Christ. Very important components of our faith, knowing and doing. Knowing and doing. And so often we fall into one camp or the other. And maybe you fall into one camp or the other. Some people, we're all about knowing. We're all about knowledge. And I've, I've found in my own life, the longer I am a follower of Christ, the easier it is to fall into the knowing camp. Like, I just want to know. I don't want to do a lot. I just want to know. I want to go to a Bible study. I want to sit down. I want to have somebody teach me. I want to sit through sermons. I want to listen to sermons. I want to get up in the morning and read my Bible. But the going and doing part, that's not really that fun. So when I hear, you know, I hear a deep dive through Romans, Jeff Amon's leading something on Romans, I'm like, you know, I love that, that's all me. But then you got other people, when you hear Jeff Amon's leading a study on Romans, am I going to have to talk? Am I going to have to talk about Romans? Because I don't know nothing about Romans, I can't even make it through the first three chapters, like that seems very confusing to me, Romans, I don't want to, I don't want anything to do with that. However, service projects, feeding people, going out, ministering to people, loving people, visiting people, you're all about that. And some people, you know, tend to fall into one camp or the other. Not everybody, but we tend to. But here's the thing. Spiritual growth is both. It's knowing and it's doing. And it's not really 50-50. It's 100-100. I know that doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's pursuing Christ with everything you have. It's coming to church and worshiping and fellowshipping with other believers and learning who God is and understanding him more and pursuing him daily. And then as an overflow of that, as an overflow of that pursuit, it's doing. It's doing something with that knowledge, right? We serve like Jesus. We give like Jesus gave. We love like Jesus loved. Most of us, we know John three sixteen really well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But a lot of us don't know 1 John three sixteen. All right, 1 John three sixteen says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
Now, that's a great picture. That first part of that, that verse is a great picture. Jesus laying down his life for us, but it doesn't stop there. We ought, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It's a great reminder, I think, especially for those of us who have maybe been in church a long time, is that Jesus is all about action as well. That knowledge you get, it actually is put into action. D.A. Carson says, There is a form of religious piety that utters a hearty amen to the most stringent demands of discipleship, but which rarely does anything about them. That kind of hit close to home when I read that. Um, but it's, it's very true. Now, for the 12 men in the upper room, back to John 13, for the 12 men in the upper room, they left everything. They left everything to follow Jesus. Three years of their lives. They left family. They left friends to be with him. And unfortunately for one of them, he still doesn't get it. Still has his own selfish desires, his own pursuits, his own selfish pursuits in mind. So as we pick up in verse 18, he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Don't ever forget that Jesus chose his disciples, all of them. In the beginning of his ministry, this is not talking predestination, all kind of those theological things. When he says, I chose, he chose the disciples, all 12 of them. You can read about it in the beginning of his ministry. This is what he's saying. I chose my disciples, all right? He walked with them. He talked with them, probably cried with them. He knew them, the verse says. He knew their hearts. He knew their desires. He knew their struggles. He cared for them. He nurtured them. He had patience with them. We see it over and over and over. And the thing, the thing that encourages me when I read that is he knows you too. And he knows me. Every single person in this room is known by God. Don't ever forget that. We, sometimes we just think globally, well, God loves people. No, God loves you. He knows you personally. He knows your desires personally. He has patience with you. He has patience with me. He loves you. He created you for a reason. He created you for a reason. Be encouraged about that. But here in the upper room, he knew the 12 and he knew that one of them would betray him. So he quotes, quotes Psalm 41. Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. He knew the heart of Judas, knew it was cold, greedy, hating, knew everything, everything Judas was going to do. And so here's what he does. He warns in the upper room as he's sitting with his disciples, he warns them ahead of time. He warns them exactly what's going to happen in verse 19. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. These next few days are going to rock your world. You're going to watch me hang on a cross tomorrow. You're going to think I'm gone. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Like your mind is not going to be able to, in those moments, especially until the Holy Spirit comes, your mind is not going to be able to wrap around what's happening. So when you're freaked out and you're scared and you're discussing what's happening and you think somehow Judas is the one who orchestrated all this, no, this is part of my plan. Just remember that this is part of my plan. I'm telling you this now, verse 19, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. 
All right, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So this, this passage right here, one of you will betray me. This is really the first time that Jesus has plainly stated that one of the 12 disciples was going to betray him. He's hinted at it throughout his ministry. I could go to a couple different places if we had time, but he just said it plain as day. You cannot miss that. If you're one of those disciples sitting in that upper room, you cannot miss the fact that he just said, one of you is going to betray me. There's only 12 of them in the room. They're all his disciples. One of you is going to betray me. And so, I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Can you imagine being in that room? Can you imagine being one of the 12 sitting around? Like what? We've given up everything to follow you. Every one of us has given up everything to follow you. Now that you're saying that we're going to betray you, one of us is going to betray you, and they do it, we would probably exactly what we would do. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Like you can picture their eyes. I think it'd probably be him or maybe him. This is probably what's going on in their sinful minds. They're just trying to figure out which of us is it. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. All right, in the moment, here's the thing. For Judas, in the moment, everything just got real. Judas knows what he did. He knows he went to the chief priests. He knows he went before that. Maybe the week before that, maybe during Passover week, he knows that he went, said, I will betray him. I want 30 pieces of silver when it's done. And so when Jesus looks at all 12 and says, one of you will betray me, things just got real for Judas. I mean, I'm sure his heart just dropped. Even knowing what he's going to do, I'm sure he was like, okay, is he going to let the cat out of the bag? Is he going to tell everybody it's me? Like, I don't know what's going to happen. And, but, he, but here's the thing. Judas still, even in that moment, has a choice to make. Now, you can argue the sovereign will of God, and he was going to do it. Judas has a choice to make in that moment. Jesus looks at all the disciples and says, one of you is going to betray me. Judas has, in that moment, he can either make the choice to carry out his evil plot, or he can make the choice to repent and pursue Jesus. Lord, what I have witnessed in these last few minutes of you washing people's feet, washing my feet, knowing that you already know what's in my heart, because he said multiple times throughout his ministry that he knows the heart of men. So Judas knew that Jesus knew. And yet you still wash my feet. He could have in that moment begged forgiveness. And here's the thing I want to encourage you with, encourage me with. For every, every single sin in your life, you have a choice to make before it happens. There will never, ever be a sin in your life where there wasn't a choice. Now, I, will, I won't argue that you might look back and say, man, I had no choice in that situation. Dude was going to do this. It was going to happen. I mean, I, I, I get that. But every single sin in your life, there will be a choice. Do I walk away from this situation or do I pursue Jesus? There's always a way out. Not saying it's easy. Not saying it's fun. Not saying it wouldn't be right and you wouldn't feel right just to do what you got to do. Somebody says something, you want to do something, you want to, I mean, you can fill in the blank. There's, I, I get it. But there's always a choice. And for Judas, in that moment, there was a choice to make. Somebody says something at work. Some, you know, think about it. Somebody says something to you at work or somebody says something to you out. One of your friends says something and the thought comes into your head to do something, right? I'm going to 
you know, whether it's physical or verbal, the thought comes into your head that you're going to do something you know you shouldn't be doing. And you can take the choice to either say, you know what, I'm going to walk away. Or you know what, it would just feel really good to do what I want to do. I'm going to do it anyway. Am I right? I mean, we're human. Your wife says something, your spouse says something, a friend says something, same thing. I mean, I know wives don't ever say anything like that. So hypothetically speaking, if a wife were to say something that frustrated you, something comes into your head. Man, I want to I say something that I know it'll feel good in the moment when I say it, but I know it's not right. Holy Spirit is pushing me, convicting me, telling me that that is not the right thing to do. And you have a choice. Am I going to do it anyway? Please myself, please my flesh, or am I going to walk away? Like that, that's where Judas is. The reality of his decision just came to fruition. Do I follow through or do I walk away? But those 30 pieces of silver were too enticing. If we had time, we'd talk about a prophecy that's made in Zechariah where it actually he thinks it's due him. He thinks it's payment, it's wages for what he's had to go through for the last three years. That's, that's what Judas thinks. He thinks, I'm owed these, this is a drop in the bucket for what I've had to deal with for the last three years. These 30 paces of silver, they're just payment. That, that's what Judas is thinking, all right? Verse 23, because put yourself in disciples' shoes. They still don't know who it is. We know who it is because we've read the whole chapter. They don't know who it is. So one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask him of whom he was speaking. So most scholars think John, who wrote this book, was the one who gave himself this title. Go back to um, 23. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Most, most scholars think it was actually John himself who writes this. All right, we don't know for sure, but John never identifies himself throughout the whole book. Okay, sometimes he refers to himself as the other disciple, but here he seems to call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it, as I've read that historically, I always thought it was kind of arrogant. I mean, that's just me. I don't know if that's just the way my mind is bent, but I always just thought he was a little, a little arrogant. Like, dude... Does he not love other people? Like the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining. I mean, it just, it sounds when I read a little arrogant, but as I think back to our passage in Lazarus, where the sisters send Jesus, remember Lazarus is sick and the, the sisters get together and they write this letter and they send this letter to Jesus. He's ministering over beyond the, in Perea, beyond the Jordan River. And the message, the only thing the message says to Jesus is, Lord, the one you love is ill. The one you love is ill. And I think it's the same idea. The disciple whom Jesus loved. It's almost like John recognizes that Jesus loves him and he's overwhelmed. Man, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. Ever think about that? Ever stop in the middle of your day and think, man, God loves me. It doesn't matter that I did this. It doesn't matter that I did that. It doesn't matter that I've doubted him my whole life. It doesn't matter that I'm an atheist. God loves me. And he wants a relationship with me. I mean, that's, that's the way I read that. It says, if you read it again, verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and asked him of whom he was speaking. So if you pull up the picture of the I did this to our last service too. Um, but the, if you pull up this picture, obviously we have no idea if this is really what the Last Supper looked like, but um, if you pull it up, it's, it's John was reclining back against Jesus. 
So Peter's probably across the room. So if it's an L-shaped table, John and Jesus and Judas are probably on one side, and Peter's probably on the far side. So Peter's kind of heard this going on. He said, one of you will betray me. Peter's mind has not been able to stop trying to figure out who's going to betray Jesus. Who is it? I have to know. You know, Peter. I have to know. I have to know who this is. So it says, literally, he motions. You know, picture Peter doing it. Hey, John, (laughs) figure out who that is. Like, you're right next to Jesus. Just figure it out. Ask him who it is. So verse verse 25. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So the Passover meal probably took place in a couple stages. And most scholars think what he would have dipped, he would have dipped some bread. Who well, I give this morsel of bread, but he probably would have dipped it either in some kind of stew or some kind of bitter herbs or, or something like that. Um, but here's what's interesting is the host of a feast. Jew, Jews were kind of known for their feast. Well, uh, you know, all societies are known for their feast. But we read a lot about Jewish feasts throughout the New Testament. Now, what would often happen is if you were hosting a feast, you would give, you would almost start off the feast. A lot of times, maybe we start them with a toast or we start them with a speech or, you know, start them with a prayer or something like that. Well, these days, a lot of times you would start off a feast by taking a morsel of bread of some kind, dipping it into whatever you were or picking up a choice piece of meat or something, and you would hand it to an honored guest, somebody who you wanted to show honor to, somebody who you wanted to show love to or esteem to or help them understand that you... You cared about them. And that's, that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus takes this morsel and he would have turned and he would have said, Judas, who probably was sitting next to him, here you go. This morsel, this chosen morsel. So Jesus says, when I have dipped this morsel, whoever it is, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Think about that. He's showing Judas honor and love even to the end. Even to that last moment when Judas says, I'm out of here. I can't take this anymore. He's showing him love. So verse 26, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So Peter and John are watching all this go down. They're probably the only two that know what's happening because John leaned back, said, well, who is it? Peter wanted him to motion. So they're probably the only two that know who I give this morsel to is it. So he gives it to them and they're probably shocked. It's Judas? Really? Really? Judas? Like, he's the betrayer? What does this mean? When is this going to go down? When is this betrayal going to happen? So verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. No one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, he was the treasurer, that Jesus was telling him to buy what we needed for the feast, or that he should go give something to the poor. So the rest of the table still doesn't really know what's going on. Um, It would have been very common especially on this night, this particular night, to give money to the poor. In fact, they would leave, starting at midnight, they would leave the temple gates open and allow all the beggars and the invalids to come into the temple gates to sit. So then when people wanted to give money to the poor, they would all kind of be in one spot. So it would have been very common for him to leave maybe a little later in the night. So he's the treasurer. It would have made sense that he was the one going. Not everybody was privy to the conversation that Peter and John had just had with Jesus. So he leaves. And nobody really thinks much about it. So it says, verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Judas leaves. Peter and John are the only ones who know. They're probably dumbfounded. Now think about it. Judas was the treasurer. He kept all the money for the ministry. You wouldn't give the money to someone that you didn't trust. 
they all would have trusted him implicitly with the money. He was the treasure. Nobody saw this coming. All right, nobody except Jesus. And yet somehow, you know, they're, they're, they're still trying to figure out, okay, this is Judas. I can't believe he did this. We trusted him. He's going to, you know, he's going to betray Jesus. And we've walked with this guy for three years. We've done life with him for this long. And then now all of a sudden, to make matters worse, Jesus says, hey, in a little bit, I'm going away. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about that, that walk to the cross and the fact that they won't be able to see him. So verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said to him, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also will say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. What do you mean we can't come? We've been walking with you every day for three years and now you're going somewhere where we can't go. Panic, I'm sure, is starting to set in. Passover week, Jerusalem's packed. The Roman guards are in high alert looking for any disturbances. The Jews are after Jesus. They're trying to frame him. Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room sharing a meal together. They begin arguing about who's the greatest. At some point, maybe even during the argument, Jesus walks over. He grabs his basin. He starts washing all of their feet. The mood changes. It's maybe a little bit more somber, maybe a little bit reflective. All right, Jesus finishes washing their feet and then looks up at the room and says, one of you is going to betray me takes the morsel, gives it to Judas. Judas leaves, and now it's just the 12 of them. Jesus and the remaining 11 disciples. Now, put yourself in Peter and John's shoes. A million thoughts running through your mind. Replaying everything Judas ever did. Was there any inkling of an idea that this is what he was going to do? Like, okay, maybe that situation, maybe when it complained about the money given to the poor, maybe I can see that a little. I mean, I, I have no doubt if they're like me, I'd have been replaying all of these situations trying to figure out, could I have picked up on it? Would I have known? What do you mean we can't come with you, Jesus? Where are you going? You know, you know Peter, knowing Peter, he's probably like, I'm going to strangle Judas myself. Let me get out there. Like, let me go get him. I'll, I'll, go, I'll take care of this. We know Peter's not afraid to do things. In a few hours, he's going to cut off the servant's ear of the high priest. You know, the high priest servant who comes to arrest him, he's just going to cut. I mean, so we know Peter's not afraid of a little, a little violence. So then in verse 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. So he says, all this stuff just went down. Peter and John are taking it all in and he goes, guys, a new commandment I give to you. They're probably like, well, what's, what's the new commandment? Thou shalt go strangle Judas. Like, is that the new commandment? Thou shalt go take him out? Because I'll do it if you want me to do it. Not even close. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What? that's the new commandment? After everything that just happened, that's the new commandment? Like, come again? Like, Jesus, we know you're revolutionary. We know you're against the grain. We know people probably even think you're crazy at times. But you're leaving. We can't go with you. It sounds like bad things are going to happen. You're saying that people we know are going to betray you, and now we can't do anything about it? We got to show love? Like, that's, that's our response, is love? Should we really be passive in a situation like this? Certainly some violence is called for, right? Certainly something a little more aggressive is called for. And Jesus says, yeah, you should show love. That's how people are going to know that you're my disciples. 
by you showing love to your enemies in bad situations when people attack you you show love and he starts the dialogue with this little phrase little children verse 33 he starts it off by saying little children yet a little while i am with you then he goes in verse 34 and says talks about the new commandment but it's like this 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 phrase little children it's like this fatherly endearing, caring reference. All right? It's used eight times. If you look at the Greek, it's used eight times in the New Testament. Once here, and it's used seven times in 1 John. It's the only times it's used. Seven times in 1 John. Think about that. Do you think this moment was etched in John's mind? Little children... I'm going to, like, the next dialogue of what Jesus says when he talks about love, this new commandment, John uses it over and over and over and over and over again in his letter, 1 John. The whole theme of 1 John is love. We're going to run through a couple of these. 1 John 2.1, that's what he says. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sin has been forgiven or sins have been forgiven you for his namesake. 228, now little children, abide in me so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Verse seven, verse three, seven, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed and in truth. Then he says with actions and truth. 4.4, four, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And then he says in verse 5.21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. You can almost hear, when I read those, you can almost hear inklings of the upper room all through there. It's almost like John and all of 1 John is recalling all of these things that Jesus talked about and just kind of breaking them out further in 1 John for people to understand. It's pretty powerful, right? This new commandment, little children, this new commandment I give you to love one another. But here's the thing, what makes it new? Love is all throughout scripture. He tells them in Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God. I mean, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. All throughout scripture we hear to love. So why would he now say, a new commandment I give you. What, what, what makes this new? All right, it's new because of the cross. It's new because when Jesus hangs on that cross, when he goes in that grave, when he raises three days later and goes to heaven, as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, he sends his Holy Spirit. He's like, you can't love like I love without me. You're not going to want to wash people's feet unless I'm in you unless my Holy Spirit is empowering you to serve like I serve, to love like I love, to give like I have given. And that's what makes it new. It's like a new way of looking and understanding an old commandment. The Holy Spirit is going to empower you. He's going to bring new power to your lives. And so why does it prove? He says, so this proves you're one of my disciples. Like, what is the proof of this? Well, the proof is, if you're loving people like Jesus loved, then it's very clear his Holy Spirit is in you. And if Holy Spirit is in you, then you're one of his. You're one of his disciples. So here's the thing. We're going we're to talk a lot more about love in the coming weeks because Jesus is going to unpack it a little more. But this, this particular passage wraps up verse 36 and says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? 
Like Peter's had enough. I'm tired of this. We don't know where you're going. We can't go with you. Where are you going? Lord, where are we going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me. You cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. And I'm sure if you're one of the disciples and you're sitting there and you're like, Peter? Like Judas is going to betray you. And Peter, kind of our leader, our outspoken, who's willing to do anything, willing to talk to anybody, willing to do anything, always puts his foot in his mouth, Peter is going to deny you three times? Like if you're, if you're a disciple, that's a lot. That's a lot to, to take in. I, like, I can't, I can't understand that. And we'll, we'll unwrap this in the weeks ahead. So for us now, John 13, what do, what do we do with this? Where do we, what do we do with this passage, right? Where do we go from here? So let me, let me just say a couple things. For those of you who are not followers of Christ, you're interested, you're intrigued, you're maybe still in the skeptical phase, I hope that you've seen from John 13, both last week and this week, how much God loves you. That it doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what your life looks like, doesn't matter how far away you are from him right now, I hope you know that he loves you. And through, the past, through this passage, and we've seen his love, and his humility, and his care, I hope that you would use today as a day to give your life to him. To say, you know what? I believe that. I believe God loves me. I believe he, hang on, he hung on a cross. I believe he rose again three days later and paid the penalty for my sins. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And for the rest of us who are in here who would say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ. Like, I'm a, I'm a Christian. My, my encouragement to you would be to pursue Jesus with all you have and let his spirit show you how to love. Let his spirit show you how to give. Let his spirit show you how to care for other people. You don't feel like loving? Pursue Jesus. You don't feel like giving? I mean, how, I mean seriously, we've all been there. And I want to love nobody. I don't care if you're walking with Jesus or not. I am not loving that person. Do you think Jesus wanted to love Judas? Pursue Christ and he will give you his spirit, his heart, his willingness, his desire to love other people. I was reading an article this week. I'll close with this story. I was reading an article this week about this girl named Jamie who was a missionary in Tanzania. And she was 23 years old. She bought a ticket to Tanzania. She had $2,000 left in her bank account. And she said, I'm just going to move to Tanzania. And when the $2,000 is done, I'll figure out a way to come home. And so that's what she did. She packed up. She moved to Tanzania. All right. And she didn't know how long she'd be there. Well, she got there. And if you've ever been to some of these, you know, third world developing countries, she kind of walks into Tanzania and was just overwhelmed with the need. Like, where do I even start? Like, there's so much. How do I care for people? How do I love like Jesus loved? How do I give like Jesus lived? Like, I don't even, I don't even know what I'm going to do. So here's, here's what she decided to do. And this is something we can all do. She started praying that God would show her or allow her 
to make a radical difference in one person's life. That was her prayer. One person. Lord, just give me one person that I can love, one person I can show who you are, show how much you care. Just one person. So after about six months of being in Tanzania, it took six months. So don't pray for two days, but she took six months. She met an eight-year-old girl in this little village at this church, and she was carried a baby on her back. Okay, and she said, Jamie is the missionary's name, and Jamie learned that the baby's mother was dying from AIDS, and she was too weak to take care of him. He was about half the size that he should have been because he wasn't getting proper care and formula. So she said, okay, I'm going to start buying him formula. With my $2,000, I'm going to start buying him formula. So she started buying him formula, and he started growing. And as months passed, as often happened, she fell in love with the little boy. And she was like, man, I wonder if I can adopt him. If something happens to his mother, I wonder if he can be adopted. But I don't even know what the, the adoption laws look like the, you know, in this particular country. So she checked into it and found out, found out that she couldn't, you know, foreigners can't adopt. So she didn't know what to do, so she started praying about it. And she said, hey, wait a minute maybe I can establish residency. And so she looked that up and says, wow, if I've been in Tanzania for six months, I can establish residency and then I can adopt. So she started that process of establishing residency because she'd already been there six months. And then she started the adoption process. And she said, she was like, I don't know if I should do this. I mean, I'm 24 years old. I'm single. I'm white. I'm in Africa. Like, I don't even know anything about being a mother. Like, I, I don't even know what this looks like. But I was praying to God to show me one person in which I could make a difference. And it's very clear that I can make a difference in this young child's life. So she, she followed through and kept, kept going forward. And um, the kid's name was Junio. And it said Junio's mother started to deteriorate over the next few months. And so she wanted to come and meet Jamie. So they set up a meeting and she came to meet Jamie. And she said, here's what she said. I've heard how you are taking care of my son. And I have never known such a love. She goes, I want to know what causes you to do that. So she explained it to her and she says, I want to be saved. So then just a few months before she died, she came to Jamie again and she says, she goes, I know that my son is taken care of. He's cared for very well. And I know I'm going to see him in heaven again someday. And she spent six months, kind of the story goes on. She spent six months going through the adoption process. Finally, it was finalized. And then she spent five months working with the U.S. embassies, trying to get a visa for him to come home. And so after all this process, she finally got everything done. And when she came home, she had been in Tanzania for a year and a half. So in a year and a half later, she came home and her life was completely changed, obviously. But, you know, as you read in the article, it just says since adopting this, this young baby named Junio, she's gotten married, she has a little girl, and her and her family are moving back to Tanzania to be translators with Wycliffe, which is a group that translate Bibles into local languages. And, you know, I, I, a couple things that stuck out when I read the story that I'll just leave you with. One to have that much of an impact on someone and to show someone love enough where they can look at your life and say, I want what you got. It's not easy. You can't do it alone. There's no way you'll love like Jesus loved on your own. You'll wear yourself out. You'll get tired and you'll quit. But if you pursue him daily and you give yourself to him, his spirit will help you with that love. Okay, and so I would, I would just encourage you, let people look at your life. Let people look at Creekside Church. Let people look at your family and say, man, I, I, I don't understand that love. I want a love like that. And then the last thing I'll say is, everybody in this room can pray for one person. God would show you one person that you can make a difference in their life. One person that you can show radical love to and point them to Jesus. One person. Now, you could obviously pray for more. 
but I'm asking you to pray for one. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for John chapter 13. It was an incredibly challenging and encouraging passage to see how you wash the feet of your disciples. You wash the feet of Judas. It's a little mind-blowing, Lord. I just pray that we would take what you did and apply it to our lives and just have a a better understanding of your love, a better understanding of your, your sacrifice on the cross, that the creator of the universe came down and walked among us and loved us and healed us and pointed us back to your father. Lord, I thank you for who you are. Thank you for this wonderful church, Lord. In your name, amen.